And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Thursday, a consequential day for the United States and indeed the global economy. Fresh economic data showing the United States arguably falling into what would have in the past been called a technical recession. In the second quarter, just released numbers show US GDP contracting at nine-tenths of a percent. That's on an annual rate for the second quarter. That's on top of the more than one and a half percent decline in the previous quarter. And it's only a preliminary look, though, at the second quarter performance. These numbers, and we have to remember this, could be revised lower. They could also be revised higher. And we have to stress two quarters of negative growth does not an official recession make. But this doesn't half present a challenge to Janet Yellen and President Biden, who's going to be speaking about the economic outlook later on today. Not to mention Fed Chair Jay Powell, who effectively said on Wednesday, don't even mention the R word. So I, don't, I do not think the U.S. is currently in a recession. Um, and the reason is there are just too many areas of the economy that are, that are performing, uh, you know, too well. And, and, of course, I would point to the labor market in, in particular. Uh. And as we've been saying repeatedly on this program, that the strongest argument against a recession is that the jobs market remains robust, even as the Federal Reserve attempts to slow growth by raising rates. Palsies, another three quarters of a percent hike equal to what they did on Wednesday is not out of the question at the Fed's next meeting in September, although he also didn't rule out a smaller move if the economy slows further and, and it's a big and, inflation moderates. This tantalizing hope, however, helping spark a sizable, some might call it whopping U.S. stock rally on Wednesday, the biggest jump for the Nasdaq in well over two years. U.S. futures, and I can give you a look at what we're seeing at this moment. Sort of unchanged to tilting to the downside, just processing the latest data. I think at this stage, choppy trading, however, in Europe as new numbers show EU economic sentiment falling for a fifth straight month and German inflation, well, that came in well above expectations. As for European earnings, no shell shock at Shell. The oil giant reporting record profits of more than $11 billion in the second quarter amid the energy price spike. That, of course, triggering much of the inflation that has continued to weigh on global growth. And, of course, that in full evidence in the United States today. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, take us through the economic data, because, as I said at the top of the show, in the past... Arguably, this would have been defined as at least a technical recession. But of course, there's caveats this time around. There are caveats in the fact that, you know, it hasn't officially been called a recession because the committee at the National Bureau of Economic Research is going to look at a more holistic uh, list of data points. Right. But let's talk about what we're seeing here. I mean, look, there's no other way to slice it, Julia. The consumer is clearly slowing down. We're seeing consumer spend. Uh, it was still positive for the second quarter, but it is slowing when you compare it to last quarter. Uh, in terms of what we're seeing Directionally, while consumers are still spending less on goods, also a continuation of what we saw last quarter, uh, still spending, however, on services, probably part of the reason why consumer uh, spending overall was still positive for this quarter. Uh, Look, I think you can't miss the fact that business spending and business investment uh, has really uh, taken a a turn negative. I mean, that was much lower. So that's probably going to get a lot of attention today, Julia, as we whether we're we're debating whether we're in a recession or not. uh, The signals here and the data points here clearly show a slowing in business investment and business spending and a slowing in personal uh, consumption expenditures or consumer spending, although that was still positive. We also saw some declines uh, in terms of government spending. 
So it it is uh, it's clear it, the economy is clearly transitioning to a different phase. Important to mention, however, that we are coming off uh, the reopening last year, right, which which mattered uh, and which meant really uh, great growth. And so uh, compared to that, we're we're certainly transitioning to a different stage. Uh, one thing that's interesting, Julia, is that there has been lots of conflicting data, certainly in terms of the, the consumer. We saw retail sales data earlier this month that showed that consumers were still spending, but when adjusted for inflation, not so much. But then all of the bank CEOs came out and said the consumer is doing great. They're still spending. They're not slowing their activities. And so this puts a bit more of a a nuance to that in terms of how the consumer is doing. We know uh, that the consumer is two thirds of U.S. GDP. It's a huge factor. So it's um, it's certainly a sign that we're transitioning, that we have transitioned to a different phase. The, The challenge is we're not there yet. And so it is a a recession obsession simply because people want to get clarity on something that at the moment is once again a very inexplicable economy with lots of different things going on and lots of levers, be it energy, be it supply chains, to try and um, to try and help us understand what's going on. It was also what Jay Powell at the Fed suggested yesterday as well in that they're going to be in militant data watching mode now. And while they may hike the same amount next at the next meeting, they may also do less if the economy is slowing. Uh, they could also do more if it's not. And of course, to what degree that slowing of the economy then pulls inflation down too? Um, we're just uncertain, Rahel. We're, we're just tough to find our answers. And it, it's not just us, right, Julie? It's not just mm. us consumers. It's central bankers too. I mean, right. uh, Powell himself, I wish I had the quote with me. I was looking at it earlier, but Powell himself said something to the effect yesterday that uh, these are very uncertain times. There is an extraordinary amount of uncertainty out there uh, in terms of de- deciding what the economy is going to be doing three months from now, six months from now. Uh, Certainly seven weeks from now, when the Federal Reserve meets again, we're going to get more jobs reports. And so the, the chairman pu- sort of pulling back guidance, saying that they, they may find it appropriate to do another extraordinarily large rate hike of 75 basis points or perhaps even more. Or, or they may not. So pulling back guidance because uncertainty is so great right now. Uh, interesting. It's not just us, Julia. It's uh, everyone sort of dealing with these different sort of data points and wondering uh, how are we yes. going to get out of this on the other side? We don't have a, a recession obsession on, on this show uh, simply because we don't want self-fulfilling prophecies, but we will continue to track it and talk about it and uh, try and make sense of it. Rahel, thank you for that. Rahel Solomon. OK, into an astonishing U-turn in Washington with huge implications for President Biden's stalled climate agenda and more. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin announcing his support for a bill that promises huge sums for health and climate change mitigation, a major change of position that could see the Democratic bill become law in just a few weeks. Melanie Zadona joins us now. We've got whiplash on this one. It would be a huge boost to the Democrats. It would face huge resistance and already is um, from the Republicans. Why the stunning turnaround, do we think? And, and what are some of the consequences of this if they can get it done. Yeah, this is a big deal and a big breakthrough after almost a year, really, of whiplash negotiations. Democrats had to really scale back their ambitions. These talks had broke down multiple times. And most recently, Joe Manchin had looked like taking some of these key climate and tax provisions off the table. And so it was a big shock yesterday when this deal was announced, but also not surprising. Democrats are feeling the heat. They want to get a victory before the midterms. Uh, And the deal they agreed to is pretty significant. Let me read you some of the provisions. $370 billion for energy and climate provisions, which supporters of the bill say will reduce carbon emissions by 40% 
by 2030. Uh, imposing a corporate minimum tax of 15%, that's a big deal. Lowering prescription drug prices to allow Medicare to negotiate and extending Obamacare subsidies, which were set to expire this fall. And so this deal does have the blessing from the White House. Democrats are hoping to use a special party line process to pass it, but that means they need the support of every single Democrat in the Senate and nearly every Democrat in the House. And they are also grappling with coronavirus, which has sidelined some of their members, including, we just learned, Dick Durbin, a member of Democratic leadership, will now be out with COVID. And so there is little room for error. They are also facing a time crunch. The Senate is hoping to pass this next week before they leave town for their August recess. And then the House would have to come back and clear it in sometime in August. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. Senate Democrats are meeting right now in the Capitol as we speak to sort through all of this. Uh, but the bottom line here is that this looks like this could actually become law if Democrats can get it done. Yeah, and it looks more than paid for with the tax rises as well. Some of the collateral damage, though, that's now being feared is the CHIPS Act, which we talk about a lot on this show as well. So uh, we'll be watching it closely. Melanie, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melanie Zanona there. Now to an ex CNN exclusive about the case of basketball star Brittany Griner. The Biden administration is offering to exchange convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, who served a U.S. prison sentence as part of a potential deal for the release of Griner and another American being held by Russia. Claire Sebastian has the details on this. Um, there's lots that's quite fascinating about this. One that the American government decided to go public with mm this decision and also now that we've heard i believe from the russians and saying at least so far no deal yet yeah julia those are the two most striking elements of this i think it is and i have to emphasize this not normal for these mm. kinds of things to happen in the public eye take the case of trevor reed the last american who was detained in russia to be released he was released in a prisoner swap in april i think the news broke on the wednesday and he landed in texas early the thursday morning so he was probably in the air by the time we found out about it. This uh, is now public while the negotiations appear to be ongoing. And I think very striking as well that Russia has not jumped at this because Victor Boot is a huge prize for Russia. He was uh, seen by America as one of the world's most prolific arm dealers and enabler to some of the world's most violent conflicts and terrorist regi regimes, seen as a major threat to American life when they did that sting operation uh, in 2008 to sort of lure him out of Russia uh, and eventually arrested him and jailed him. So seen as a big concession. I think the question is, why are they waiting? It's very unclear at this point. The one thing, the concrete thing that we can point to is that the Russian side has been very clear that in the case of Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who is currently on trial for drug charges in Russia, they have said that, that, that no discussion can start on whether she can go home until after that trial is complete. And certainly, Julia, in my experience of covering Russia, when they set a condition like that, they very, very often do stick to it. Yeah, they adhere to it. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you for the context. Claire Sebastian. Okay, straight ahead, a unified push against Putin. The Prime Minister of Greece joins us to talk about his strategy to tackle Russia's energy threat. Plus, no inflation hangover, soaring sales at the world's largest spirits maker, Diageo. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. These are the stories making headlines around the world. The presidents of the United States and China speaking on the phone as we speak. That's according to a White House official. The conversation comes at a time when 
Relations are at a historic low ahead of Nancy Pelosi's potential trip to Taiwan, a visit that Beijing strongly opposes. Selena Wang joins us now from the Chinese capital. Selena, as you and I were discussing yesterday, um, stringent, strong pushback in terms of that potential visit to Taiwan. Not the only thing they're going to be discussing, but certainly the elephant in the room. Exactly, Julia. I mean, this call was supposed to be a point to manage the relationship, to really simmer and lower the temperature. But now hanging over this, overshadowing all of this, is this potential visit by Pelosi to Taiwan. And Beijing has made it extremely clear that they do not want Pelosi to take this trip. They've urged the U.S. to cancel the trip, threatening powerful and resolute measures if Pelosi does in fact go. Now, of course, the president does not actually have the power to stop Pelosi from going, but assuming on this call, that she is all but expected to make it clear what this point is. But this call timing is so critical right now because it needs to be had in order to ensure that we're minimizing the risk of a miscalculation that could actually lead to a real conflict. When you have more military posturing in that region in such a delicate moment, that is a fear among officials in the United States. Now, the question is, what are the chances that Beijing would actually take a forceful reaction. I think there are two very different viewpoints on this. And one is that she, there's a risk, he would take very strong action on this because he does not want this trip to look humiliating to him. This is coming at a time where we're just months away from a key political meeting when Xi Jinping is supposed to seek an unprecedented third term. He cannot afford to look weak at this moment. Now, on the flip side, I've spoken to many experts, including here in Beijing, who say, look, all of this language from Beijing, they're vague pronouncements, and that is by design because they want to deter this visit. They do not actually want to risk any military escalation, nor are they ready to risk that military escalation. And that if and when Beijing does decide to make their move, they want to make that move on their own timing. And especially considering all of the economic challenges in China with the COVID pandemic continuing to devastate the economy here, they say that what Xi Jinping needs leading up to this key party Congress is stability, not more uh, in- instability that could be caused by an escalation that Xi Jinping cannot control. So really the critical question here is how can Xi Jinping make a move that would look forceful to an international audience and to the audience at home while also avoiding this from escalating out of control? Julia. Yeah, it's a fascinatingly posed question and crucial. How does everyone always come out of these kind of negotiations looking strong and like they've won something? I wonder whether, and we can talk about this too, because we have been talking about the potential for weeks now of perhaps to help with the economic backdrop and the inflationary pressure, a removal of the tariffs on Chinese goods coming into the United States. How, if any way, does that play into perhaps these um, uh, concerning talks and negotiations? Yeah, Julia, because Taiwan is just one of a long laundry list of disagreements between the U.S. and China right now. We're also expecting them to discuss Russia's relationship with China, as well as what the U.S. sees as China's increasing aggression in the Indo-Pacific. Now, on the tariffs point, important to note that this call was scheduled weeks before this news about the potential Pelosi visit actually came out. However, the latest we've heard from the White House officials is that Biden has not yet made a decision on this, and we don't expect tariffs to factor significantly into this conversation. But of course, Beijing would welcome any move to remove some of those tariffs, and it also could be a political win from the U.S. side in order to help ease those inflationary pressures. Although we've discussed before how much of an impact that actually makes is up for debate. 
But when a tit-for-tat situation is taking place, one should always look at potential leverage points. Um, Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. We'll see. Okay, let's move on. Ukraine is warning Russian troops in and around Kherson, the south of the country, to, quote, retreat or be annihilated. British military analysts say a counteroffensive by Kyiv has virtually cut off Kherson from other Russian-held areas, leaving thousands of Russian troops vulnerable. It comes as Russia launches missile strikes on the Kyiv region for the first time in weeks. A district in Wuhan, China, the original epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, is again on lockdown. Officials adhering to China's zero-COVID policy have shut down bars, cinemas, internet cafes and the like for three days after detecting four asymptomatic COVID cases. It impacts nearly one million people in central China's transport and industrial hub. And North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is warning that the North is fully prepared to mobilize its, quote, nuclear deterrence, according to state media. Kim said this on Wednesday during an event celebrating the 69th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. He criticized the recent joint military exercise conducted by the United States and South Korea, which he called duplicitous and gangster-like. Now, we've been talking about President Biden, of course, and uh, President Xi on the phone. President Biden also set to speak later today on the surprisingly weak U.S. economic numbers released less than an hour ago. Today's data shows the U.S. economy contracting at a nine-tenths of a percent annual rate in the second quarter. It's the second straight quarter of negative growth and the strongest signal yet that the United States is moving closer to recession or perhaps is already in one. GDP weaker due in part to slowing spending on the part of businesses, governments and most importantly, the U.S. consumer. We can take a look at the stock market reaction. U.S. stocks remain on track for a modestly lower open this morning, but could hold on to much of the strong gains we saw yesterday, perhaps on the perception that today's weak numbers will force the Fed to pull back the size of its rate hikes. Randy Krosner here joins us now. He's the former Federal Reserve Governor. So fantastic to have you on the show. What do you make of this most recent data, a second data point in quarterly succession that, that comes in negative? Are we or are we not in a recession? So formally, there's a, a committee at the National Bureau of Economic Research that will make that determination uh, in uh, in a few months. Uh, the job market is still reasonably robust, but obviously we've now had two consecutive quarters of GDP contraction. A lot of this is due to some supply chain disruptions. People want to buy cars and can't buy cars, but we're also seeing in general consumers being uh, much more wary of consuming. It's still consumption growth is still positive, but very weak. Uh, we also saw um, firms have an inventory mismatch. They built up a lot of inventories earlier in the year, and that's not the stuff people wanted to buy. And so uh, that's also contributing to this, uh, this contraction in, uh, in GDP growth. Yeah, and that was a huge part of the first quarter contraction as well that people were pointing to and saying we just have to take a step back here and understand what the basic data point is telling us. It sort of all feeds into the level of uncertainty that we have at this moment and what we heard from Jay Powell yesterday too in that they are even more sensitive to, to individual data points and the progression of the economy and those data points in order to make decisions. It's tough to guide. 
for sure. One of the key pieces of information that was in this report, and, and we'll get another piece related to it tomorrow, is about um, the uh, uh, the price index that the Fed looks at is not the consumer price index, but the personal consumption expenditure index that comes out with this GDP report. And so the headline number was still quite high. The core number that is stripping out food and energy prices was a little bit lower, and we'll get a um, the most recent number uh, for the most recent month tomorrow. That's going to probably be the most important thing affecting how the Fed is going to move forward. But I think it's still very likely that they're going to raise probably by 50 basis points, a half a percentage point at the next meeting in September. I think one of the big questions for me, for, for Jay Powell, is look, how much inflation are they comfortable with? Um, are we going are we going to be forced to go back to the two percent level that we always talked about in the past? And are they going to try and get interest rates or what we call the, the Fed fund rate above the rate of inflation? So I think they do want to get to two percent. The key question is over what time horizon? Mm. Um, now, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Inflation is still quite high right now, and maybe it'll come down um, uh, a fair amount by the end of the year. I think the most recent uh, most recent data will, or the next readings on um, uh, on inflation, will probably show a little bit of a, uh, a reduced uh, amount of inflation because food prices have come down, energy prices have uh, have come down. Um, inflation rate's still going to be high, but it won't be quite as high as it uh, as it was. But it's going to take a while to to get there. And so the Fed still will have to continue to raise rates. What they are hoping is that inflation will continue to come down so they can stop raising rates around 4% or so, because inflation, by the time they get to uh, uh, the end of the year or the beginning of next year, will be closer to 4% than the 8 or 9% that we're seeing. I mean, that's part of the key of this as well. It's that even when the Fed's acknowledging that some of the data is softening and that you logically slow the path of rate hikes as the economy softens, you're forgetting the bit that says and connects a slowing economy to inflation coming down at the same time. And that sort of disconnect or lack of understanding at this point is, is complicating that the picture as well. Um, the strongest argument, I think, is the strength of the jobs market. How much give back on jobs do you think they're willing to see as in loss of jobs? as an economy slows before they say, okay, enough's enough, irrespective of what the inflation rate is. So I think there, I think if you, if you uh, read um, uh, the chairman's comments the way I read them, they're really focused on bringing the inflation rate down. And if that means that the unemployment rate is going to go up significantly, um, they'll tolerate that. Uh, he was asked exactly the same question that you just, just asked me, and he, he danced around it. He didn't give a particular number, <laughs> but he did emphasize that. Uh, and, and, and what he said, which I very much agree with, is he said, if we don't bring inflation down, we don't have a foundation for economic growth and job growth going forward. And I think that's right. We saw that in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when inflation was, was very high, that was very destructive of, of economic activity. The Fed had a raise rates to double digit levels. I know it's hard to believe that, but it really did occur the last time that inflation was, was this high. I don't think the Fed is going to have to go uh, go to that because I think they're they're moving um, uh, moving more quickly and inflation expectations haven't become um, fully entrenched. But that that can happen. It did happen once. I hope it's not going to happen now. Back then, the unemployment rate went up to 10 percent. I don't see it going anywhere close to that. Mm. Thank you for not dancing around my question, perhaps in the same way that, that Jay Powell did. Um, Randy, very quickly, uh, a U-turn 
in terms of the Democrats trying to present some kind of broader bill to help with the energy and uh, and healthcare costs as well, more than pay for it seems if they can get this through in the way that it looks at the moment with with tax rises. I think one of the big sticking points was that they didn't want to add, or at least certain members didn't want to add more spending to an economy that was, as we've already discussed, is is suffering from significantly um, too high prices and price pressures. Your view on on this, if they can get it through? And so I think that it, unfortunately the devil will be in the details of exactly how the spending comes out. Um, but it does, uh, we have to be very wary of adding further fiscal fuel to the fire. Mm. And so if there are good investments that make a lot of sense, they're going to be productive and pay off for economic growth, that's perfectly reasonable. If it's just spending that is probably going to lead to just um, uh, increased uh, uh, increased price pressures, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I can understand why there's been a lot of wariness by uh, by Senator Manchin as well as others of uh, supporting something that could just add fuel to the fire. Yeah, no more fuel on the fiscal fire, please. So we'll watch the detail. Randy, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Randy, thank you. Cosma there former governor at the U.S. Federal Reserve. OK, coming up here on First Move, thinking out of the box. We're joined by the Prime Minister of Greece on his plan to tackle Europe's energy crisis collectively. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. EU nations agreed this week to voluntarily cut their gas consumption by 15 percent through next winter. There was plenty of caveats, including mandatory cuts kicking in in emergency situations like a severe eruption in gas flow from Russia. A difficult decision, I think, and a deal forced upon them in many ways by the latest supply cuts through the Nord Stream pipeline. Greece relies on Russia for 40 percent of its gas, has been proposing a number of measures to help ensure security while aiming to reduce prices across the European Union, utilising a carrot rather than stick approach. Let me explain. The government proposed a six-point plan back in March aimed at ensuring European solidarity by compensating industries for cutting their gas use this winter. Then, in a letter to European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, the Prime Minister pressed further, stating by offering financial incentives rather than relying on the penalty of interruptions during an emergency, the proposal is more likely to unlock a firm and sizable response from industry. This week, he's also discussed with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman opportunities for the future, the possibility of things like linking power grids to supplying Europe with cheaper green energy. It all comes as Greece, like other nations, tackle a cost of living crisis tied to higher food and energy prices while dealing with a continent-wide heat wave resulting in wildfires. Joining us now, the Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Prime Minister, fantastic to have you with us. Um, wow, I know you are constantly busy. Let's start by talking about the EU energy deal. I think the reaction in the gas price market said everything. There's a credibility gap. There's real fear of the power that Russia continues to wield. Something more surely needs to be done. I, th I think you're right, um, uh, Julia. We have uh, agreed um, uh, in principle to reduce uh, our demand for gas by 15%. Uh, and we've also agreed to uh, sort of a mandatory framework uh, uh, to make sure that this does happen in case there is a real uh, emergency. But obviously, we need to send a much clearer signal to the market uh, that our approach uh, is uh, credible. And that is why 
uh, I've uh, sent a letter to Ursula von der Leyen proposing uh, what I consider to be a, a reasonable middle path between uh, um, completely mandatory measures and voluntary measures. Essentially, as you described it, uh, it is a demand response mechanism for industry that will have a much longer duration than the usual demand response mechanisms that we use when we want to take into account uh, peak demand for uh, electricity. Essentially, we'll be uh, paying industry not to produce uh, and not to use uh, gas in a much more organized manner uh, with a much uh, longer time horizon. Uh, we think this is a credible proposal. It has been relatively well received. Uh, and I would hope that we can get some serious traction on these issues before uh, September, because right now there is uh, obviously significant uh, uncertainty in the gas market. Uh, gas prices have increased tenfold. And this is something we all know is not sustainable. Uh, Greece uh, uh, relies on uh, on gas uh, um, uh, for its electricity production. 70% of the gas that we import goes into electricity production. We are taking our own measures to reduce our dependence on gas. Uh, we're forced to switch back to lignite uh, for the next um, uh, couple of years. Uh, and uh, we also use uh, various other measures to make sure that we reduce our dependence on gas. But this needs to be done in a much more organized manner at the European level and also in a manner that is credible for the international gas markets. Yeah, and it's about changing the economics, uh, incentivizing less use rather than uh, potential punishment and also mitigating the risk premium that's in prices now that doesn't tie to the supply and demand, even as it stands today, because at some point prices get so high that industry can't afford it anyway. And you're exacerbating the potential for, for economic slowdown across nations, too. So what's the response been? I know it's um, what it's been four days. Probably too, too early to tell. And, and as you uh, as you know, Brussels is not at its most uh, active uh, during uh, uh, during the heat of the summer. But what I can tell you um, uh, regarding prices is that we've been making the case that there's something fundamentally wrong in the gas market uh, since last February. I mean, if you look at the volatility of the TTF, there's no reason why the prices should be so volatile. If you compare, for example, the TTF uh, index to the to the oil market, you will notice the significantly larger volatility. Uh, I think you know a lot of people are making a lot of money at the expense uh, of uh, European governments and at the end of the day at the expense of European customers. This, in my mind, is an unacceptable um, um, uh, sort of situation that needs to be addressed uh, uh, much more uh, drastically. Uh, we need to reconsider the link between gas prices and electricity prices. When we put in place our marginal pricing um, mechanism for the European electricity market, it made a lot of sense. It was a time when renewables were still the most expensive form of electricity production. But now with gas uh, shooting through the roof, this mechanism makes no sense mm. whatsoever. So I would really hope that uh, as Europeans, we get our act together before winter uh, comes and send a clear signal, not just of solidarity, but also of effectiveness uh, in addressing a problem uh, that essentially is affecting all of us. I mean, up to now, you've spent a lot of money subsidising, dramatically subsidising for, for both small businesses, for consumers, the, the price increases that they've seen. And I'm sure for, for Greek people watching this, they want to know and understand for how long you can continue to do this, because there are political consequences, too. I mean, we've seen political instability in Italy, the UK government. Yes, they have idiosyncratic reasons for, for instability. But even in the United States here, we see dramatic consequences for this government's support, too. Stability of governments at this moment in a cost of living crisis is vital, particularly given what we've been through over the last two years. 
Uh, you're right. Let me address your uh, your first uh, um, uh, question. We will continue um, uh, to support Greek households and Greek businesses for as long as necessary. I mean, we are uh, recycling, we're diverting windfall profits um, into a scheme that is subsidizing electricity uh, bills. So we try to keep the increases reasonable. Just to give you an example, for households, we will be absorbing up to 90%, that is 90% of the increase in the electricity prices from the baseline price where electricity prices were, let's say, two years uh, ago. Uh, and of course, uh, the public budget also has to contribute to this effort. And we're able to do that because the Greek economy has been essentially overperforming. We're doing much better than Eurozone, than the Eurozone uh, average, and this is allowing us some fiscal space. But as we discussed in the previous um, segment uh, of your show, there's only that much that uh, uh, public budgets can do, and that is why a European response is absolutely necessary. You're right to point out that political stability is, is paramount uh, these days. Uh, uh, we have a very stable government um, uh, in Greece, uh, and uh, I've committed, publicly committed, that uh, the Greek government will see out its term and that we will have our elections in 2023 uh, when our term comes um, uh, to an end. Uh, and uh, I think in this way, uh, we're sort of resisting the temptations of calling an early election, although we're way ahead in the polls. But it is important, Julia, uh, in these times to send a signal of political stability and of political predictability. And I do hope that uh, when our term is up, um, we will again convince the Greek people that we deserve a, a second term. But this will happen only at the end uh, of our term in 2023. Yeah, I mean, I've, as you know, I've spent many many months in Greece over the past few years uh, reporting on elections. And to, to your point, I do think it's important that you can be strategic about the timing of calling an election when you are ahead in the polls. But the loss of time in leadership terms and in government decisions would be would be tragic. So um, your point that you make there is um, is well heard. Let's talk about some of the good news as well. Tourism. We and I yeah, just, keep receiving. Just, please. Yeah. Sorry, just one point on the question of political yeah. stability. Uh, Italy is plunged into a political crisis. Um, uh, Greece is a stable government. Right now, um, Greek uh, government bonds uh, are trading at a 30 basis point discount. I repeat that discount to the Italian bonds. Um, although we have a higher debt, it has very peculiar characteristics. One of the reasons why this is happening is because Greece is politically stable and Italy currently is politically unstable. So there is no way, Julia, I would ever compromise political uh, stability to achieve a short-term uh, political gain. That is not the proper way of, of, of running a country. And I think that one of the reasons why the markets are also rewarding Greece is because we are institutionally responsible. And your FDI flows, the foreign direct, direct investment flows, um, I think argue that too, uh, Prime Minister. Let's talk about tourism. I keep getting uh, photos from people that are spending time in, in Greek islands, particularly ones that come from America, because obviously the, the strength of the dollar versus the euro is, is helping them too. And you've had a few high profile visitors. Talk to me about one of the most important contributors to, to your economy and the recovery that we're seeing, more than recovery, in fact. I think the, the recovery has has been very, very uh, impressive. Greece is doing particularly well uh, this summer. Uh, I think once we... Uh, once we do the math at the end of the season, I do hope we will be pleasantly surprised. We have lots of people coming to Greece, but the most important thing for me, Julia, is that people are happy uh, and they are having a fantastic time in, uh, in Greece. So whether they visit the islands or whether they visit the mainland, we 
have done, uh, we've put a lot of effort in upgrading our tourism product, in making sure that all new investments uh, in tourism are, uh, are sustainable and people can come to Greece and have an exceptional uh, experience. And the good thing is that they no longer just come during the summer. Uh, we saw this year the tourism season start very early and I do expect it to end uh, very late. Uh, we have uh, nine or ten, I think, non-stop flights from the U.S. on a daily um, basis. We expect, just to give you an indication, a million visitors the first week uh, to arrive um, uh, in Athens the first week uh, uh, of August. Uh, so we're particularly happy uh, uh, about this influx uh, of, of tourists, but also about the fact that people who come to Greece seem to spend more than uh, in the past. But again, our focus is on making sure that we manage our destinations properly, that people have uh, a great time, that they share their experiences on social media, uh, that they can convince people like you to come and visit us, uh, <laughs> and, that they come back next, and that they can come back next year and bring even more friends to Greece. Noted. You also, I have to say, offered to provide a warm retreat for, for Germans, potentially, this winter if they, um, if they wanted to come too. I noticed that in, in the past couple of months. Any takers on that? It's a sort of circle back to our well, energy conversation. Uh, yeah, well, Greece is not just about tourism. Uh, Greece is a great place mm -hmm. to spend the you know, whole year. Greece is a great, became a great destination during COVID to work from. So we want to take to turn Greece into a destination that people can can visit for holidays, a place where they can work from. We have uh, thousands, I would say tens of thousands of digital nomads who work um, out of Greece. We have retirees who choose to spend other gloomy sort of North European winters in Greece, which is great for us because it helps us uh, spread our, uh, our season. Uh, so this is not just about, uh, you know, people appreciating the beauty of our beaches in the summer. It's about much more than that. I want to ask you finally about Turkey and, and the current state of escalated tensions. Um, I think there are a lot of people that are watching this situation and are very worried, not just for the region, but given the backdrop of what else is happening in Europe at this moment. What can you say about that to perhaps alleviate some of the serious concerns? What I'd say, Julia, is that we're facing sort of a, a once in a sort of in a generation um, geopolitical crisis after the invasion uh, of Russia into Ukraine. Uh, the last thing that uh, NATO, the last thing that Europe needs is another source of instability uh, in southeastern Europe. And we have an obligation to sort out our differences uh, uh, with Turkey. And there is only one playbook which we can use, and that is the playbook of international law. Uh, Greece uh, has always behaved very, very responsibly towards uh, uh, Turkey. We're destined by, uh, by geography um, uh, to live together. Um, yes, we've seen uh, serious provocations by Turkey over the past months, but I, I really believe that President Erdogan would, would serve his people um, much better if he focused on reviving the ailing uh, economy, the ailing Turkish economy, rather than uh, reviving sort of neo-Ottoman revisionist uh, um, uh, fantasies. Uh, so we need to sit down. We need uh, to to talk as uh, as responsible uh, adults. We don't. We should not use foreign policy to fuel sort of national sentiments. That is an irresponsive uh, approach. Uh, Greece will always behave responsibly. But it will always do whatever it, it can, whatever it has to do to defend its sovereignty and its sovereign rights. That is simply non-negotiable for us. Sir, great to chat to you today. Please let us know when you hear from the uh, European Commission. And um, we look forward Thank to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, Prime Minister. Great to chat. Okay.
Still to come here on First Move. Cheers all round at Diageo as its iconic brands bring in another strong quarter despite many challenges. I speak with the CEO next. Welcome back to First Move. Iconic brands and strong cocktails making it a great quarter for Diageo. The global leader in alcohol saw second quarter sales rise 21% thanks to resilient consumer demand. Despite rising costs, Diageo, whose brands include Johnny Walker, Crown Royal, Casamigos, Don Julio and Guinness, saw particularly strong growth in its scotch, tequila and beer categories with its premium brands driving 71% of net sales growth. Diageo also raising a glass in India where one in two bottles of all whiskey produced in the world is consumed and they clearly see it as a growth opportunity. Joining us now to discuss all of this, the Diageo CEO Ivan Manesis. Ivan, fantastic to have you with us. Um, one analyst I saw described these results as exceptional. Um, it's a challenging time out there, but certainly drinkers not seemingly showing any signs of, of slowing down, even as prices rise. Well, uh, good to see you, Julia. I have to say I'm really pleased with the quality mm. of our results in the past year. Uh, the top line grew 21%, but there was 10% volume growth, which means more consumers enjoying our brands, and 11 points of price and mix, which is people drinking better. And the Diageo is very fortunate with our portfolio and our geographic footprint. We had double-digit growth in every region of the world. All our categories are in growth. The, the three main ones you pointed out, Scotch whiskey up 29%, in which Johnny Walker was up 34%, uh, beer was up 25%. Our tequila business continues to motor up 55%. We have two of the hottest brands there in Don Julio and Casamigos. The high end of our portfolio is growing the fastest, and this is, supports the trend of people drinking better and preferring spirits and cocktails to beer and wine. We're seeing that in many parts of the world. But it's we've been investing, and that's what I want to just highlight. We've upweighted our marketing investment, and we uh, capital spending now on the business is at a record high. Uh, over a billion pounds as we're building capacity and converting our facilities to be carbon neutral over the next decade. And uh, so it's a business that's doing well, but we're investing back into it very strongly. Oh, you've introduced customers to these more premium brands. And, and to your point, I think what you're saying is even as prices rise um, and there are obviously cheaper alternatives on the market, they're choosing to stick with you. Um, and I know you said on, on the call as well, this is a, a challenging environment, but that you've reiterated guidance for the next three years. Is there's a message here really that whatever the rise in input costs and however much you have to pass that on, um, you've got a customer now that, that's dedicated to, to the products that you're providing. Yes, and I think it is from the quality of uh, brand building, innovation, the, the digitization of the company, we are gaining a lot of market share. In 85% of the world, we're holding or gaining share, and uh, that's helping. But I just take a brand like Johnny Walker. Uh, if you look at Johnny Walker Red Label, it grew 20%. Johnny Walker Black Label grew about 40%. And Johnny Walker Blue Label grew about 60%. So you're seeing that trade up in whiskey right from China to Kenya to the United States to Brazil. And uh, it's how we keep our brands highly aspirational and relevant. 
And these are great quality products and they're affordable. The average American household spends about a dollar a day on spirits, $330 a year. So, and they buy the product infrequently. So <laughs> the brand stands for a lot. Wow, I'm going to use that statistic. Um, you know, also part of this, and I saw it was an acquisition that you made um, in the second quarter, Vivanda, which is uh, an owner of a flavor print um, artificial intelligence technology that you know, it's behind projects that allow you to match people their tastes with the products that you provide. Talk to me about this because I'm, I'm always fascinated where we start to see sort of big data and artificial intelligence use, particularly in, in this kind of sphere, sort of food or, or drink products. Talk to me about this purchase and, um, and what it's going to mean going forward. You know, it's, uh, we're delighted to have it. Uh, this is an AI uh, amplified technology. It's proprietary and we bought this company because what it does is in very simple terms, you know, people can find, say, whiskey intimidating. Uh, what kind of whiskey do I like? Which single malt? What part of Scotland? What flavor of whiskey? American, Scotch, Japanese. And uh, what this does is uh, 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 it can decode for you based on your flavor preferences. Uh, so do you like banana or toffee? Or, I mean, it has a series of questions it takes <laughs> you through and then can tailor and recommend the right whiskey to suit your taste profile. And it's more importantly, it does it in a very fun and engaging way. And then we get data, which helps us develop new products and the profiles, and not just in whiskey. We can do this across categories. So uh, uh, we're delighted that we've been able to acquire this team. They're a very smart bunch who've developed this proprietary <laughs> technology and, and uh, it's going to feed our innovation and our brand building and marketing efforts. It's like an alcoholic dating app. That's what, that's what you're providing. <laughs> you can use that. I mean, I have so many more questions and I wanted to talk to you about India too, but I've run out of time. So you have to promise to come back on before your next earnings now. Um, it was always uh, a absolutely. pleasure to chat, sir. There you go. Yeah. You promise now Thank you have you. to come back. Yeah. <laughs> Great to so chat, much. sir. Thank you. The CEO of Diageo. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday in a volatile session so far. Stocks currently, as you can see now, for the Nasdaq down some 1% as investors process today's weaker than expected read on the U.S. economy. U.S. GDP contracting at an almost 1% annual rate in the second quarter. This is the second straight quarter, in fact, of negative U.S. economic growth. The definition of a technical recession for some, though, of course, not yet official, as we've discussed many times on the show today. Meanwhile, slow growth firmly in focus at Meta, the parent company of Facebook, falling in early trade after missing on its top and bottom lines and warning on the third quarter too. The US government also throwing a roadblock in the way of Meta's metaverse plans, moving to block its purchase of a virtual reality firm that would help in Mark Zuckerberg's corporate transition. Hmm. Earnings out later today too from Apple and Amazon. So we'll be talking about those tomorrow. And finally, diamonds are, of course, a girl's best friend. And this one would make anyone shine like Marilyn Monroe. And more. A 170-carat diamond named the Lula Rose has been discovered in a mine in Angola, and it may be the largest pink gemstone found in 300 years. Australian mine, a Lucapta diamond company, says it's only one in 10,000 diamonds found are coloured, and finding one this size 
is extremely rare. The diamond is expected to be auctioned by the Angolian state diamond marketing company Sodium. No word on just how much it could be worth. A lot. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.